Fun's over. Preaching starting. The, uh, you know, we're starting the book of 2 Corinthians. We came through the first chapter. If you've been with us and, you know, we started off with a bang talking about how ministry is all about suffering. So sit down and suffer. Get ready. <laughs> we're going to continue. But the good news is we're getting into chapter 2. Um, yeah, so again, welcome back. Good to see everybody again and really great to, man, after all those weeks and months that we couldn't be together. I still just can't get over how happy I am to see everybody here. It's awesome. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, no kidding. It's a blessing. And um, yeah, I mean, even, even some of you, it's a blessing to see. <laughs> I just couldn't help it. All right. I'm a little too relaxed. We should get right into this subject, talk about something negative and get going. Um, let me just say, um, also, those of you that are praying, thank you for praying. Keep praying for um, our new church plant in Columbus. We go every Sunday evening. We'll be going again tonight. I'll be sharing with them this evening about uh, the subject of missions and missions philosophy. So um, we're giving them information as a group of existing Christians that um, are looking to join us. And so we're giving them a bunch of information about who we are and what we're all about. So just be praying about that tonight. We'll be cranking that up at 6 6.30, whatever time it is that we start. I don't know. I get confused. I, I need more days off. Okay, let's get into this. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Life is tough, man. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? Um, actually, life is tough. It's tough for everybody, and, and this kind of is the intro into what we're going to be talking about today. We'll turn the corner on it, though, as we get into it. Um, as of late, I think everybody recognizes just how tough things have been and how tough they can be, but can I maybe encourage you with the fact that life has always been tough from the very beginning. And I want to remind you of that because it's going to set us up for what we're going to look at today. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the beginning of man and once man sinned, the consequences of the sin from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we'll read in verse 16, uh, where the Lord said, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So this thing of sorrow was introduced right from the very beginning as a result of man turning his back on the word of the Lord. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, concluded this in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter number 2, verse 22. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night, this also is vanity. Solomon, who had everything at his disposition, very wealthy, very successful ruler, lived at a time of peace, given the wisdom of God, looking over life and understanding life on this earth. That's the phrase, under the sun. And he said, everything that you work for, it's just sorrow and grief and vanity. It's everywhere. But I would say that maybe even especially for the Christian because the Christian studies the Bible and gains spiritual knowledge and wisdom 
about the true state of men and the true state of this world that we live in. And so go back a chapter in Ecclesiastes and chapter number one, verses 17 and 18, Solomon says this, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now, we're all about increasing knowledge. That's why we come here every week. We're all about studying the Word of God and understanding it better. We're all about seeing how the Word of God really sets our life in the direction that it should set our life. But in the context of having God's wisdom and God's knowledge and understanding and then viewing the world under the sun, that's the context of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says the more you understand God's wisdom and then see what's going on, Man, this, there's nothing but sorrow. And the more you understand, the worse it looks to you. So let's make this very practical as we set up what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. Practically, in our daily life, people are frequently overcome with grief and sorrow all the time. And that comes in a lot of different ways, but... I want to mention one particular way, and that way is that people suffer sorrow and grief because they find themselves wronged in a particular situation. They can't let go of it. And because they can't let go of it, they suffer internally. In fact, they desperately want to be able to move on. They want to be able to, as David said, return to the joy of his salvation. But they can't. They can't. Why not? Well, will you listen to me with love? The reason why people can't move on from that kind of sorrow, it's their self. They still greatly value themselves. In the face of the clear biblical truths that we've seen now for several weeks in a row that we are dead in Christ. We've been bought with, our, with a price. Our life is no longer our own. We're crucified with Christ. We're not the ones who any longer live. In light of those clear biblical truths of who we are in Christ and who we are not anymore as humans, yet still we suffer sorrow and grief and despair and anguish because we think somebody did me dirty and I just can't let it go. But as long as I keep myself in clear view, I'll, I'll fight to the death to defend me and ultimately vehemently defend, here, you, here it is, you ready? My rights. Laodicean. I'm going to defend my rights as proof of, are you ready? My righteousness. You don't want to stand before the Lord with your righteousness. But when you exalt your own righteousness, your goal is really to just point out the other person's guilt, isn't it? So the title that we've given this sermon today is called Turning Sorrow into Joy, and you'll be glad to see that we can turn sorrow into joy. 
And the way to do it is through the act of forgiveness. And forgiveness is the theme of chapter number two of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is all about the minister and ministry. Chapter number one was all about suffering being the key to being an effective minister. And chapter number two is all about forgiveness and the forgiving spirit, the, the necessary ability to forgive and to walk away. Literally, the word to forgive is, well, it's to remove the requirement of payment of a debt. Matthew 18, 27, the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Somebody owes you something and you're like, that's all right, don't worry about it. It's all good. We'll, we'll just call it a day. Don't pay me. We're all good. I have forgiven you. That's literally what it means. So let's go back to our practical daily life that at some point in time we all go through. Whenever you feel wronged, what happens is, is that deep in your soul, you think that that person owes you something. They owe you something. At least an apology. Maybe some form of retribution. The problem is, is the other person or the other party, well, they don't agree. They don't agree, and so they're not offering it. And you each go your separate ways, but in your soul, you're still waiting for and expecting the payment of the debt they owe you. And you suffer. You suffer. There's only one way out. And hear me. The only way out of that prison is forgiveness. It's forgiveness, and you better learn that. So I put this statement in your notes in our introductory section. Without exercising forgiveness, you become slaves to your own flesh. You can't be set free yourself until you're willing to set the other person free. Man, I, I wish it didn't work that way, trust me, but it does. Romans chapter 6 talks about it this way, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And I understand that there's a doctrinal application referring to that moment of salvation, your whole life was nothing but serving sin. And then, man, thank the Lord, when you understood the truth, you became the servants of righteousness. But you can make practical applications to any particular moment in your life when you find yourself once again bound by servanthood, slavery to sinful natures in your flesh. And the only way out is to be made free to be a servant of righteousness. When the issue is an offense, the answer is forgiveness. Galatians 5 starts off this way. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Referring to the freedom that we got at the moment of salvation. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You had nothing but bondage before your salvation. Why would you willingly go back into bondage? 
How do I know that this is true of you? Well, because it's true of me. And we're all the same. You see, the great thing about being the guy who gets to study all week and stand in front of you and declare the Word of God. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me rephrase that. The awful thing about being the guy who gets to study all week and stand in front of you and declare the Word of God is that it hits me first. And yeah, I know. I don't always nail it. Yeah, I know. I'm also flesh. Yeah, I know. I fight with these things too. And I know that you're watching me, and I know that if I don't nail it, somehow you feel justified that you don't have to either. But come on, you're smart people. You're not saved in the name of Jeff. What the heck? <laughs> We're all just trying here. And 2 Corinthians, like I said, is all about ministry. And as we'll see getting into chapter 2, especially coming off chapter 1, balance is required in ministry. Listen, you represent and you reveal the Word of God as a minister of Jesus Christ. And the Word of God will reprove and rebuke, but it's also going to exhort. So standing for God often means that we stand against sin. We're required to. And biblical separation is a real thing to keep yourselves and to keep your church pure. But a good minister of Jesus Christ must be able to forgive others. Or he himself will become bitter. And not only rot from the inside out, he'll ultimately take the sword of the Spirit and just kill people with it. So rebuke and forgiveness. What we're going to see today is that they're both acts of love. They're both acts of love. So again in your notes, the biblical ministry requires the proper balance of expressing love. The balance has to include room for forgiveness. Are you going to be a very angry, bitter person? So, all of that in introduction, but you'll see as we read through the first eight verses together, you can follow along. Chapter number two. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you, should, you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, He's not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, as we look into this particular subject, and regardless of our thoughts and ideas of being effective ministers to others, Lord, we desire to just understand this principle in our own lives, understanding that when we understand and apply this principle in our own lives, well, then 
We become the people that you can use. We can become the effective ministers that you desire us to be. So I pray that you would teach us this very practical lesson today. And Lord, I know that there's people who need to hear this today. And I know that because there's always people who need to hear this. There's always people who are struggling with this kind of a thing. And the heart is a deep well, and we hide a lot of secrets down there. But the lamp of the Lord searches even to the soul. And I pray, God, that you would root it out. And I pray, God, that you'd be honored with our godly response to you in humble submission. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since biblical ministry, right, requires this balance of love, we're going to start off with our first point. You need to love enough to confront. You need to love enough to confront. And this will be our first four verses of these eight that we're going to look at. So Paul introduces in these first few verses this comparison and contrast, talking about sorrow and grief and talking about gladness and joy. And he kind of sets them in position one against the other. Now, you need to understand the context. And if you like, you can keep your finger here and you can flip back a few pages and remind yourself of the story from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what he's referring to here goes back to a specific event in the Corinthian church that was revealed back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you were with us then or if you're a faithful Bible reader, you'll remember the story that this is the story of a guy who was in the Corinthian church, who blatantly and openly was having physical relations with his father's wife. And Paul rebukes them all, and he leads them all into saying, look, even the pagan Gentiles don't do this kind of craziness. And he says, you can't let this go on. You have to get this guy out of your congregation. And they instituted this church discipline to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And this is the event to which he's referring throughout this passage and coming through this entire chapter. But specifically here, you need to understand that that reference from 1 Corinthians 5, that guy that did that thing, is the one to whom he's referring as we come through these verses. Now, he uses this term over and over again, to be sorry or to have sorrow. And, and just for definition, that means to be sick or weak or afflicted or grieved. But it can also mean this. It can mean that you don't have any hope. To have sorrow is to not have hope. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, as the Thessalonian church was worried about whether they missed the rapture. And it says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Because people who have no hope for the future, all that's left is sorrow. That's all that's left is sorrow. So in verse 2 he says, If I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. So he's referring to this individual that he made sorry because he pointed out his sin. And he's like, how are we going to rejoice together ever again unless this guy gets it right? But before we even get to that point, I want you to understand, he says, 
Paul made them sorry. How? He made them sorry with his first letter that he wrote. And, and can I just point out that the first letter that we have recorded here, this is we've seen before, it actually was the second one, but the first one inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, that made them sorry because he kept correcting their errors. They had so many. Well, he says, what I wrote to you caused you to be sorrowful. Well, what he wrote was Scripture. And I just point that out because you know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, pointing out what is right. Reproof, pointing out what's wrong. Correction, showing you how to get it right. And instruction in righteousness, how to continue on in righteousness after you've gotten it right. That's what Scripture is for, right? It's perfectly balanced. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, complete, equipped, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, right? So that's the purpose of the Word of God. It's to equip you to be able to do all kinds of ministry, and that comes from this purging away of the sins of the flesh, this reproof and correction and instruction. Well, that led to the official church discipline of this brother. So back in our text in verse 3, he says, I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. He says, I didn't write to cause you more grief. I wrote to ultimately bring joy so that Paul and the Corinthians together can rejoice and be glad. But only when that sin is accurately and sufficiently dealt with. And when that happens, then they can rejoice and be glad together right? That my joy is the joy of you all. And you can go back to chapter 1 and verse 14 where they were each other's joy, right? But you could just look at it like this and say, y'all, we are all in this together. My joy is your joy. Your joy is my joy. I'm a part of you. So this man's sin, it obviously affected many. It affected the entire Corinthian church. It affected Paul too, he was personally grieved. He was personally brought full of sorrow. It was emotional to him. We see in verse number four, he uses phrases like much affliction, anguish of heart, many tears. He didn't write that letter to grieve them more, but to show them how much he loved them. He loved them enough to confront them. You know what that is? This is in your notes. That's the act of being fatherly. That's the act of being fatherly. Because you know this. If you love your kids, you will correct them. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord gives us this laid out clear as can be, starting in verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Notice, for whom the Lord loveth, 
he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Look, we all get it once in a while. We all get rebuked and corrected and chastened once in a while because we all blow it once in a while. Verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Your earthly fathers corrected you and you still love them. When your heavenly father's correcting you, can't you give him the same grace? Even more. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. God chastens and rebukes and corrects us because he loves us. Not to hurt you. Now, verse 11 has to be added. Everybody understands that no chastening for the present moment seems to be joyous but grievous nevertheless afterward see all things work together for good it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby like nobody likes being corrected nobody likes being told things that they're doing wrong but sometimes it's necessary so that you can change the behavior that means that the confrontation and the correction, when necessary, is an act of love. And to run from it and to avoid it and to never participate in it because, well, I just don't like that. Well, that's not very loving. It's not very loving. You say, I know people that confront people all the time. They're not very loving. Okay, well, you judge it how you want to, but it can certainly be an act of love, can it not? Some people will say, if you love me, you wouldn't talk to me that way. If you love me, you wouldn't talk to me that way. Well, the truth of the matter is, maybe somebody's talking to you that way because they love you. Maybe they love you enough to care that you get it right. And maybe if they didn't love you, they wouldn't bother to talk to you at all. Because can I tell you, this act of confronting others in their sin and their, diff and their problems that they have, it ain't fun. People say, I don't like confrontation. Well, who does? <laughs> who just loves it? Nobody likes it. And if I really don't care about you, go live your sin. Just leave me alone. I don't care. But if I care, if I care, might say something because I care. So this rebuke, this correction, well, that's an expression of biblical love, isn't it? People don't see that today. People are Laodiceans. People say, that's not love. That's not very loving. Well, that's because you've gotten so far away from understanding what the Bible teaches about what love is, you don't even understand. But it is love. Remember Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, that God inspired to write those books in the middle of the Bible? 
Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than secret love. You know, some things are better than other things, right? Being rich is better than being poor. <laughs> Open rebuke is better than secret love. And then it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Your friend loves you. And sometimes your friend has to wound you. But they're faithful. But the kisses of the enemy, well, now that's the guy you got to watch out for. What did Judas do when he betrayed Christ? Oh, he kissed him. And all that loving and hugging and kissing. Now watch out for that. Proverbs 9, 8 and 9, reprove not a scorner. Man, this is a good little chunk of scripture here. Lest he hate thee, rebuke a wise man, and he'll love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. How do I know if he's a scorner? How do I know if he's a wise man? See how he responds to the rebuke. Once you see how he responds to your rebuke, if it's done truly in love, well, you know who they are, don't you? Because if he hates you for it, He's just a scorner. He's just a scorner. But a wise man will take it to heart. A wise man will consider it. A wise man will say, man, that hurts. Bro, that hurts. But I guess I need to pray about it. And when you go before the Lord and you pray about it and you get it right, and then you're like, wow, thank you. Thank you for loving me that much. I bet that wasn't easy for you. So, in your notes again, like a good parent, discipline begins with words, doesn't it? That's how you discipline your kids. You start out by saying, now don't do that. And then they do it again, and then you say, listen, I told you before, now don't do that. And depending on how you run your house determines how many times you say that before you ramp it up. And how you ramp it up, you know, I'll just leave that to you and the Lord. The Bible actually has some steps laid out for you. But you know God's a good father, don't you? And you know how he begins to correct and, and chase and chastise us and rebuke us? Well, he does it with words, doesn't he? I mean, he does it with words. And he expects us to listen to the words. But what happens when a brother's corrected by the word of God? And he's like, you know what? I'm not interested in listening to that. And he's so ingrained in his sin and he's so ingrained in his selfishness that he's just like, eh, before you know it, he doesn't have a time in the word of God in the mornings reading and spending time with the Lord and listening to the voice of the Lord anymore. But he still comes to church. And then after a while, he doesn't even really like coming to church anymore because he sure doesn't want to hear me or anybody else stand in front of him and preach the word of God and have to hear it anymore. And those words are just offensive to him now. And so now I don't even go to church anymore. And you see these people run away. Why? Well, because deep down there's something wrong in their heart. There's something wrong in their flesh. There's sin in their life. And they don't want to hear the truth. So they turn away from the words. And the Lord has a way to ramp it up. We read that in Hebrews 12. 
That's when it refers to that scourging. You know what a scourge is, don't you? It's a whip. So God's going to give you a whipping. And there's different ways that he can do that. And so many of us sadly have experience and understanding what it means that you just refuse to listen to the Lord and he gets your attention. He can get your attention. And people fall ill and things happen and they lose jobs and relationships go south and all these things happen and you find yourself laying flat on your back and saying, Lord, what happened? And he's like, oh, oh, you want to talk now? <laughs> See, I tried that, but I don't think you weren't, you weren't interested. So, okay, well, great. He's a good father. Well, let's have a talk. Let's talk about how you got there. And that's what the Lord does. But in order for that to happen, well, we've got to receive the Lord's words as the Lord's words. Right? We saw back in Hebrews chapter 12, well, the correction initially causes grief. It initially causes sorrow. But man, that sorrow is only temporary, right? If we respond to it. We're going to see when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this theme is reiterated in a different way, and I don't want to get into it too deep in chapter 7 right now, but in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, it says this, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, notice, though it were but for a season. See, the sorrow that comes through reproof is only intended to be temporary because it's done out of love. And love is also referred to in the Bible as charity. And 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us that charity edifies. It builds you up. So there's a balancing point. You, you need to learn to love enough to confront. But then you need to, number two, love enough to comfort and this is the second half. And, and can I say that sometimes this one's harder? Like you would think it wouldn't be. You would think the, you know, the comfort part is, you know, love, love, love. We like this part. But it comes after the offense. It comes after the sorrow. So we actually can... Find it in ourselves to love people enough that when we see them erring, to confront them and to try and help them and to point that out. But after it's happened, sometimes, depending on which side of that you're on, after that happens, then loving enough to comfort and forgive. You see, Christians, we're... We're kind of, we're still messed up. I mean, we're just messed up. And I've wrestled with this idea in my life so many times over the years that I don't know why it is that it seems like sometimes lost people do a better job of being friends than Christian people. Not always. Because lost people can get really mad and punch each other in the face, dudes anyway. 
and then just kind of, you know, go have a beer and be done with it or something. I mean, just they're, they're cool. Yeah, glad we got that out of the way. But Christian people are like, oh, you offended me. I'll hate you forever. <laughs> we do that, man. I knew he was no good. I knew it all along. I just didn't want to say nothing. And we just don't, again, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter which side of it you're on. You're like, well, forget him. Write him off. It's done. Never again. Paul goes on in verse 5. This is our second section. But if I've caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. That's an act of love. Paul was grieved because there was open sin in Corinth, but he says, I was only grieved in part because, I mean, well, it didn't directly affect me. I mean, I was indirectly affected as a part of the body. But he is saying, look, don't kid yourself. Sin is grievous. It's grievous to the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with your sin. Your sin grieves the Lord, and that Spirit of God also lives in me, and so it grieves me too. But Paul loved the Corinthian church, and even this brother enough, to make sure that the level of correction that was offered was measured to be appropriate to the problem that was at hand which, by the way, is a godly response. So this is in your notes. God ensures that the punishment fits the crime. This is a great quality of our Heavenly Father. He makes sure that the correction is commensurate with the, with the error, with the, with the sin. So everybody knows the Old Testament law, right? The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, and that comes from Deuteronomy 19.21. And it says, thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the skeptic and the atheist tries to point at stuff like that and see there's no love and your God is just mean and evil and wicked and just, you know, carries out vengeance. But can I just tell you that God is doing that because he's just. If somebody causes something to happen that you lose your hand, he's going to lose his hand. He's showing that the punishment fits the crime. There was capital punishment, life for life. That's how it was set up. It was fair. It was commensurate. It was right. But I want you to notice that there's verses leading up to verse 21, we're going to look at in a second, that show just how just God really is. He's so just that he also applies that same standard to the false witnesses that might appear to accuse somebody of something. Those that falsely accuse others of wrongdoing, God has something to say to them as well. So we back up in Deuteronomy 19 to verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, it didn't really happen, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witnesses be a false witness, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, what are you going to do? 
Then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. So somebody falsely accuses somebody else of some serious thing. It happens all the time, right? In society, in life, in our courts, people accuse people of stuff all the time just because they're mad and they know that the legal penal process that has to be followed is so severe, it'll just ruin that guy's day if it won't ruin his life. And they just throw around these accusations. And the Lord says, not in, my, not in my system it doesn't work that way. You falsely accuse, when you, you better measure yourself before you bring an accusation against somebody else. Because if it turns out that your accusation after diligent inquisition is made by godly men, if it turns out that that's false, then the punishment that he would have deserved if he did it is the punishment we now give you. Somebody wants to bring an accusation to take a man out of his ministry for reasons that are unjust, then those people need to be taken out of their ministry. You feel me? That's how God works. That's how this thing's put together. You know what? That's making the punishment fit the crime. Wouldn't that just really slow down all the lame accusations? So he says in verse number 6, back in our text, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So this man was disciplined out of the church, and that was sufficient punishment because his sin was open and blatant before the entire church, and it was inflicted of many because the whole church was in on agreeing that we put this man out and have no more fellowship with him. But because we read through where Paul is now going to talk about forgiving him, obviously it had to have happened that this man in 1 Corinthians 5 responded properly to the church discipline. Obviously this guy went and got his heart right with the Lord, and he repented of his sin, and, and now he's ready for restoration with the whole body. That's what we see in verse 7. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. You, you exercise the right amount of discipline. And he responded, now let's get it right. Let's reconcile the whole thing back again. Because if you hold on to the disciplinarian status after they've done what they're supposed to do, well, then he's just going to give up. I did what I was supposed to do, and it doesn't matter. Over much sorrow. So that guy got his level of sorrow, and now the church needs to respond as well. Because... Otherwise, it would be the punishment exceeding 
the offense. And there is no avenue for forgiven, for forgiveness and restoration. There is no comfort. But you need to love enough to confront, but you need to love enough to comfort, right? To forgive. Always remembering that there are some prerequisites, and this is in your notes. Restoration is offered on the basis of confession and repentance. That's the basis. You don't, you don't just say, yeah, we've been mad at you for about a year. Eh, that's long enough. It's all good. But the guy's never repented. The guy's never got it right. The guy's never confessed anything. Well, then, we're riding out this system until you change your mind. 1 John 1, 9, if, conditional, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doctrinally, literally, word for word applies to the moment of salvation. You have to ask for forgiveness of your sins to gain eternal forgiveness. When he forgives you, he forgives all your sins, past, present, and future, positionally. We know that. But practically, it can absolutely apply to your daily walk and relationship with the Lord. Because your daily walk and relationship is not a matter of your salvation. It's a matter of your fellowship. And like anybody ever knows who got crossways with somebody else, you might, it might be a father and a son. You have a family relationship no matter what, but you go crossways with your dad, well, the fellowship is broken until somebody confesses something. We'll go back to 2 Corinthians 7. We had read verse 8 before, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance See, that's the goal. For you made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Yes, you can apply that at the moment of your eternal salvation in Jesus Christ, but you can also apply that in the context of godly sorrow worketh repentance to rescuing you from this situation you're in. And that is not to be repented of. That kind of repentance. But the sorrow of the world, well, that just works death, right? So there's some rules for confession. You need to understand these, and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, sins against God should be confessed only to God. Make sense? Uh, you sin privately, nobody needs to know about it. Get it right privately. That's what We don't march people up here, and we don't make everybody tell it. Listen, this... This would be a lonely place in this room right here if, if we started marching everybody up here who did something stupid privately, right? You'd be worried about when it was your turn, and you'd get sick of watching everybody else anyway. That's just not the way it works. That's just stupid. Sins against God should be confessed to God. I'm not your priest. Don't tell, you don't need to tell me. Number two, sins against another person should be confessed to that person. Have you offended an individual and then come back to others and say, man, I'm really sorry I did it to that guy. Well, go talk to that guy. Well, I don't want to talk to him. I'm telling you. I'm telling you I'm really sorry. Well, tell him. You didn't sin against me. You sinned against him. You also sinned against God, but you also sinned against him. So go get it right with him. 
And then lastly, number three, sins against the entire congregation should be confessed to the entire church. And when and only when people do things that are so egregious that it affects the life of the entire body, well, then the entire body needs to know about it. And if somebody ever does that and is removed and wants to come back, well, then they, since they sinned against the entire body, they need to confess in front of the entire body. And in Laodicea, that happens so rarely because, well, the idea that you don't have fellowship with us anymore isn't a problem. You can just go down the street and have fellowship with a bunch of other sinful Christians, and they'll receive you just fine. So church discipline really doesn't work that well in Laodicea, but it's only because there's too many carnal Christians out there willing to pat, you know, pack their pews out with people who have already been kicked out of other places. They don't care. I'll get away from my theme if I do, bro. So I'm going to try and wrap this baby up right here. Thank you, though, for that. The last verse in our section today is verse 8. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Did you see how in both cases Paul's talking about exercising his love? It's loving to confront. It's loving to forgive. And so that's our last point in your notes. It says the, this act of comforting love. This is point number two in your outline, the comforting love, right? proves that the previous act of confrontation was also love. You see that? When a person is willing to say, yeah, we had to take this tough step, and yes, it was hard for us for a while, but the fact that you're willing to take your step, we're willing to take our step too, and the fact that we're willing to love you in comfort and forgiveness today should confirm to your soul that what we did back then was also motivated by love. That's how it fits. So whenever a person repents of their sin, in accordance with the guidelines that we saw, then the body should respond likewise, repenting of the judgment. Forgive him. Receive him. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Restore him does not mean just look the other way. Restore him means go through the process of confronting and getting a confession and a repentance and then receiving him back with forgiveness. That's full restoration. Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, here you go. Anybody have a quarrel against anybody? Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. How did Christ forgive you? Well, one, completely. We, we use the theological term justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's a cool way to remember it. I'm justified before the Lord. He sees me just as if I'd never sinned. How does Christ forgive you? He forgives you so much, it's as though you never even did it. But remember, you did have to ask for it. It doesn't just come automatically. You had to, you know, 
Ask and you shall receive. Right? Jesus Christ, how many times do we do evangelistic services and we explain the free gift of eternal life and it's as though God is on the portals of heaven reaching, extending his arm. Here is the free gift. Who would like it? Well, you have to ask to receive it as your own or it doesn't become your own. This forgiveness is offered to everyone, but until you ask for it, well, you don't get it. That's how Christ forgave you. That's how you forgive others. You're ready, but they have to ask for it. Do you understand? You can't force it down their throat. But when that will happen, that brings joy. It brings real, true, lasting joy. Which is permanent, by the way. The sorrow is temporary. The joy is permanent. So the situation arises, there's a conflict, and the Lord allows the conflict for whatever reason, and your flesh got in the way, whatever happened. And so you have temporary sorrow, which pushes you to the point where you need to deal with it. And if you'll deal with it, then there exists forgiveness, and once the forgiveness is offered and received, well, then there's permanent joy. It's the greatest thing ever, right? Right? That's how your sorrow is turned into joy. Psalms 30, verse number 5. For his anger endureth but a moment in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now that's a doctrinal picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ when the Son of Righteousness will arise in the morning of the dawn of the new day of the Lord. But it can apply to any of us any day of our lives when weeping endures for a night. And joy can come in the morning. Proverbs 3, 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom the Lord chasteneth, O Lord, and teacheth him out of thy law. Job chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty, for he maketh sore... He bindeth up, he woundeth, and his hands make whole. So the joy exceeds the sorrow. That's what Jesus said in John 16, 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child... She remembereth no more the anguish. Why? For joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. No man taketh from you. If you find yourself anywhere in the midst of this conversation today, can I just encourage you, take the first step. Take the first step. You have sorrow in your life? Is it because you have sin in your life? Well, confess it. Forsake it. Repent of those things. This is your time. Does your sin affect another person? Well, go to that person and confess your portion and then be restored. As much as it lies upon you, 
live peaceably among all men. You can't guarantee what they'll do, but you can do your part. But be restored first and foremost to God, and then as necessary to others. Or else, you'll never regain your joy. You'll never get it.